right, so uh, this evening, the scripture reading is going to be from uh, Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10, and that's also where the sermon comes from. And I've entitled this sermon, Christ the King of Glory. Christ the King of Glory. And looking at this psalm, Psalm 24, uh, usually the route that is taken with this portion of scripture is it is applied to when the ark was recovered from Obed-Edom and taken back to Jerusalem. And it gives Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, 6, I believe it is, gives the account of when David danced before the, uh, the ark. And uh, we are familiar with that story and know everything that takes place there. And, you know, the account that has been given, the, the messages that have been preached, and even the commentaries on that um, particular instance, that portion of Scripture, are good accounts. But I see in this portion of Scripture a chance to see Christ and the glory of Christ in it all. So that is why I have entitled this, uh, this particular sermon, Christ the King of Glory. And what I plan to do is to look at the glory, his glory in creation, and also Christ's glory in salvation. And then we will end up looking at Christ's glory in his ascension. So those are the, the areas that we will focus on uh, this evening. So I'm going to read, starting in uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 10. It says this, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and, the, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Amen. And I pray that the Lord adds blessing to the reading of his word. And what we will do is just go back through, um, through this scripture, through this passage of scripture, and look at the glory of Jesus Christ. First thing the glory of Christ in creation. This is where the first point of focus is going to be. Uh, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. 
it's rare when we think of ownership of that, that we think of ownership of the earth on a whole. When we think of land ownership or ownership of the earth, we tend to think in terms of ownership of our own land, our homes, our lands, land that we may own and rent out to others, or even land that we may rent from others. We think in terms of what we possess and our plans for our land. We may even put boundary markers around our land just so others know that this is my land. But how often do we give thought to what scripture tells us that the earth is the Lord's? Do we ever give thought to that? The things that we possess, the, the um, lands that uh, claim it's actually the Lord's. Do we give that any thought? See, you may think that you own the land that you possess, but though you may hold the deed to the land, it belongs to the Lord. It's not yours. The very land which you walk upon is the Lord's. So how should we think of this? What is the consequence of that? So the consequence of that is this. It's that the land that we possess, we should be using it to bring glory to the name of the Lord because it is his. We should take care of the land that he has given us to the glory of his name. And not only the earth, but all it contains is what this verse tells us. So everything that sits upon the earth, everything that is affixed to the earth belongs to the Lord as well. So the buildings, the housing structures, the trees that grow out of the ground, the leaves that fall down onto the ground, the flowers that grow, the vegetables that sprout, the cattle on the hill, all that this earth contains belongs to the Lord. And so we should remember that whenever we cling so tightly to the things that the Lord has blessed us with. We should not cling so tightly to those things that we are unwilling to share those things with others to the glory of the Lord who owns it all. See, that which is ours against the world is not so against the claim of the Lord. Why? Because it's all his. And see, this is a good principle for us to live by, and it's also an important truth that we should, uh, we as the church should communicate to the world that the earth is the Lord's, the possession and the fullness thereof. See, there are those who try to run so many schemes. They tell you that the earth is going to be destroyed by some cataclysmic climate event. You know, and people run scared about those things and start to, you know, this is what I should do so this, so this doesn't happen, and that's what I should do. I have to listen to what they say because in two years, this earth is going to be gone. No, no. We need to remind them that the Lord is in control. It is his earth. He is the one who is running the show. Now, you want to talk about a, a cataclysmic climate event, if you want to talk about Second Peter, well, let's do that all day. But that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, the earth is the Lord's. Pharaoh, 
was even reminded of that. Moses said to him in Exodus uh, chapter 9, verse 29, it says, Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is whose? The Lord's, right? And speaking in terms of Christ and the glory of Christ in creation, he is the one who holds all all things in balance. We have no need to fear. This earth is in the all-capable hands of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 is what we'll read. It is a familiar portion of Scripture, but we do want to remind ourselves of these things. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Starting in verse 15, it says this, it says, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So listen, the earth is the Lord, is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And it also says, the world and those who dwell in it. So what is it talking about when it says, what is scripture talking about when it says the world and those who dwell in it? This these are all of the habitable regions of the land that belong to the world. So there are areas on this earth that man cannot dwell in, right? But the Lord owns and controls that as well. So these are areas that should not be of much concern to us, only to the degree that we agree and understand that the Lord controls even those areas, and he deserves all of the glory even there. Now, our primary concern, however, should be those areas wherein mankind does inhabit. Uh, here is where the sovereignty of God must be acknowledged. Now, there may be questions about what takes place on the earth and beneath the waters, but where man dwells, he must give way to the king, the Lord, and bow in obedience to him. All creatures of the land and sea obey the Lord. Man, his most noble creature, has no right to disobey him. And why is that? Why does man have no right to disobey the Lord? Because the Lord owns him, right? You who are Christ redeemed should most certainly take this to heart, that he owns you. The breath that you breathe is not your own. The eyes that you use to gaze upon things are not your own. Is your gaze fixed upon things that are holy? Your lips and your tongue are not your own. Do you speak fruitful things or do you dishonor God with the words of your mouth? Your legs 
and feet are not your own, are you walking in the path of righteousness or running after temporal things of this present age? Have you considered with your body and the use of it, the way that you treat your body, the things that you consume by mouth, and even the things that you consume by sight? These are things that should be done in honor to God who owns you, right? We should be giving him the glory in all things. The things you consume by your very thoughts, do you take into consideration even the things that you dwell on that are unholy? See, your mind is not your own. Your soul is not your own. Your body is not your own. You are not your own because Christ owns you. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, it says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Amen? Verse 2, it says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So why does this earth belong to the Lord? Because he created it. The way that he created it should give us some pause, though. This verse tells us that the earth was founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers or the waters. Think about that, upon the seas and the waters. If you were ever to build a house or some sort of structure, I doubt that you would seriously consider building it upon the seas, the unstable seas. However, the Lord founded the earth upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. How truly awesome our Lord is for the earth to be founded upon unstable waters is a testimony to his strength. He holds all things together by the power of his might. He lifted up the earth out of the sea, and he holds the floods back that would otherwise consume this earth. Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 11, it says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, sets, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. 
and here shall your proud waves stop. If you've ever questioned why the waters do not swallow up the earth, or if you've ever been at the beach and wondered why the water stopped right where it did, there's your answer. God. He is the one who controls the waters. See, all of the rest of God's creation subjects itself to the Lord. But man, the crown jewel of the Lord's creation, instead of saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, man says, my kingdom come, my will be done, everything else has to fall in line. See, as the sea is boastful with its waves and must be put to a stop, saying that it can go no further, so man must be limited as well. See, but the prideful boast of wicked man says, though you tell the waves to go no further, when you tell me you shall not, my response is, try to stop me. This is the crown jewel of God's creation. All of creation obeys the Lord, but when it comes to man, his boastful pride says, try to stop me. See, that leads fittingly into the question of verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Here we will see uh, Christ in the glory of, and his glory in salvation. But before we address that, let's first notice the dramatic shift that takes place here. Back to um, Psalm 24, if you're, if you're not there, if you have turned someplace else, let's go back. It goes from verses 1 and 2, talking about the earth and the seas, and then it makes that dramatic shift from the majestic splendor of the earth that the Lord created to another much greater world altogether. And this is the hill of the Lord and his holy place. See, David had this in mind whenever he penned the psalm. The 24th psalm is a song written possibly, as we have already discussed, uh, to be sung whenever the Ark of the Covenant was taken from Obed-Edom to the hill of Zion. Now, there are arguments both for and against this thought, but I'm not going to argue in favor of one view over another. That is not so much the concern right now. But the, the hill of Zion, it typified the visible and invisible church. And when the people uh, attended the ark to its rightful place, David put them on notice that these were patterns of heavenly things that were going to uh, take place. So they should be considering heavenly things themselves. This helped them to set their minds on things above and not things on the earth. As those who attended the ark could not do so in an unworthy manner, neither can there be an expectation of ascending the hill of the Lord or standing 
in his holy place while being defiled and full of sin and filthiness. There is no way. Charles Spurgeon says this in his commentary on this psalm. He says, it is uphill work for the creature to reach the creator. Where is the mighty climber who can scale the towering heights? It's not heights alone, but it's glory too. Whose eye shall see the king in his beauty and dwell in his palace? Who may ascend this heavenly place? Who may stand in the Lord's holy place? The word stand here is not in the sense of simply standing up from your seated position. But this word stand means to stand two feet to the ground, maintain your place in the presence of Almighty God. Who can do that? Who can do it? Psalm 1-5 says, The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So the question is this, who can truly and acceptably worship God here on earth temporarily so as to be admitted to heaven eternally? Who can do it? Be honest. Ask yourself right now, can I? Can I? Let this be a point of self-examination as we go forth with what God's word lays out as the requirements for ascending the hill and standing in the holy place. Uh, Verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, these are the people who can stand in the hill and dwell in the holy place. What does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? What does it mean to not lift up your soul to what is false and to not swear deceitfully? Well, let's take a look. Clean hands. These are hands that do not commit impure acts or acts of violence. They do not participate in deeds of wickedness or darkness. See, not only do they not do these things, they have never done done so. These are hands of innocence. A pure heart. This is a heart that does not act out of selfish uh, ambition, one that is not storing up wickedness. This is a heart of a person that does not openly confess sins with their mouth to only hide and joyfully cherish them in their heart. Not only do they not do these things, but they have never done so. A pure heart is a heart of innocence down to the inkling of a thought. Quoting Matthew 5, 8, Charles Spurgeon says this. I go back to Spurgeon. He says, the pure in heart shall see God. All others are but blind bats. Stone blindness in the eyes arises from stone in the heart. Dirt in the heart throws dust in the eyes. So answer this question. How can you even see clearly enough to perform good works unto God whenever you're blinded by the darkness of your heart? There is no way. 
lifting up your soul to what is false. What is this? This is the lifting up your soul to the worthless things of this world. It means that you are so tethered to the things of the world. You are, you are tethered to the things of the world, seeking the world's pleasures for comfort and for satisfaction. And satisfaction of the things of God are just a side note to this soul. This soul has not found pleasure in God, nor will it ever apart from his grace. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul, Matthew 8.36 asks us. And this is the question that has to be asked to that person who is focused on the things of the world. If you get the world to you, the world to me may mean two completely different things. You know, I could have things that I like and I value so much that I'm doing as much as I can to go after those things and get them all. And to you, it looks foolish. You're like, what are you doing? You know, vice versa. You know, it could be the same thing for you. The things that you treasure, you value, you chase after those things. And I'm looking like, why? Why? But whatever those things in the world are, they amount to nothing when it comes to finding satisfaction in Christ. The clear command of Scripture says this. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. First John chapter 2 tells us, and listen, this is a command. It's not a suggestion that is being thrown out by the apostle John. No, this is a command. Listen, if this world is what you want, then this world is what you can have. Live it up, soak it up. But the temporal joys that this world offers is the height all that you will have. Are you satisfied with this world? It will get no sweeter than the temporal things of this world, but the end of that is eternal destruction. So what is the profit? The soul that does not, the person that does not swear deceitfully, what does that mean to not swear deceitfully? It means that you keep your word. You do not lie. You are a person of integrity. Your word can be trusted. To not swear deceitfully means that you always do these things. Also, that there has never been a time when you have not. See, these are the requirements of the person who can ascend the hill and stand in the holy place. So I asked you a little bit ago to examine yourselves as we walked through the scripture, what scripture requires of those who wish to ascend the hill and to stand in the holy place. How are you doing with that? Did you pass the test? Be honest about it. Did you pass the test? See, it is only those who have clean hands and a pure heart who can ascend 
and stand in the holy place. Your acts must be pure and not stained with sin, and so must your heart be also. Clean hands and an impure heart do not follow. Both must work together. True religion, however, calls for the work of the heart. So we can live without our hands. But to remove the heart, we would die. Jesus said in Mark 9, if your hand causes you to stumble, and yes, this is hyperbole, but if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. The heart is a different matter, for if you cut it out, you die. The heart must be transformed and made new. From the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that is a work of grace. So in all of this, I hope that you see the need for someone much greater than yourself to perfect you, to make you brand new, to take away your stony heart and remove the stony scales of blindness from your eyes. May I point you to the one who can accomplish that on your behalf. It is Christ, the king of glory. Not only does he have glory in creation, but he gets the glory in salvation as well. The requirement stands. Clean hands, pure heart, not given to falsehood, no deceit. Christ is the only one who can fulfill this on the sinner's behalf. There is no other. Christ was without sin. He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He has clean hands. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. First Peter uh, tells us, Christ's hands were pure. They were pure hands. And what did his persecutors do to his hands? They took the pure hands of Christ and they drove nails through his hands when they put him on the cross. However, now those who are in Christ can lift up holy and undefiled hands in praise to Almighty God above. How can you do this? Because your hands have been cleansed by the blood that dripped from the outstretched hands of the Savior. The feet which walk the path of righteousness without so much as stumbling on a sinful grain of dust were driven through with nails also. But the blood that poured out from those holy feet enables you, believer, to walk along the narrow way that leads to life. When Christ's work on the cross was finished, he hung his head and died. Then the purest heart to ever beat amongst men was pierced through whenever the spear was thrust through Christ's side. Then out poured the blood and the water. Now, speaking of the blood and the water, Thomas Manton, he says this. He says the water is to purify the church and the blood is to feed it. 
He then goes on to say that we should cry out to the Lord, saying about the water and the blood as they flow together out of your pierced side. So let them ever flow together into my wounded soul. Justification and sanctification. Is that not what we need from God? The requirements to ascend the hill and stand in the holy place of the Lord are set. But praise be to God that what he requires, he supplies. Verse 5 says, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart did not receive that only from Christ, but the demand... For righteousness is met through Christ as well. For believers will forever be partakers in the spotless righteousness wrought out by Christ. This is the continual blessing that we receive from the Lord. His righteousness. And without his holiness and his righteousness, we cannot stand in the presence of Almighty God. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64 tells us, and we need a greater righteousness to make us presentable to God. That righteousness is not our own, but that of Christ graciously imputed to us. Verse 6, it says, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Now, to earnestly seek to commune with God is a beautiful thing. And it's something that the believer will never be disappointed in because truly seeking the face of God by doing this, you, you will be purified. The sinful tendencies in your life will be exposed and rooted out. It sets us apart for personal holiness by causing us to pay attention to the wickedness in our lives that needs to be done away with. We can confidently go to God and ask him to rid us of those sinful acts which pierce the heart of Christ, because that is what's happening whenever we, as believers, sin against our Savior. Seeking the face of God not only sets us apart for personal holiness, but we are joined together with Christ's true church through seeking him. The church past, the church present, the church future. There is always a remnant of believers, a seed that shall serve the Lord, as Psalm 22 tells us. So Christ's glory in creation, in salvation, it's only through Christ. Salvation is only through him. And we will now turn our attention to the ascension of Christ. For after the Lord died and was buried and then resurrected on the third day, he was on the earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And he gathered his apostles together, as Acts chapter 1 tells us, commanding them not to leave Jerusalem. He told them of the power that they would receive when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be witnesses for him throughout the earth. And then scripture reads this in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we see Christ. We now here get a glimpse of Christ's glory in ascension. Verse 7, it says this, verses 7 through 10, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So here we have a glimpse into the triumphal entry of Christ into heaven. Jesus approached the gate of the celestial city, and as he did, the call was made to lift up the gates, lift up the ancient door which barred entry into the heavenly city. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And this is a fitting title for our Savior and our King. For he defeated sin, death, and hell through his perfect life. His death on the cross taking on the wrath of God for sin and the resurrection from the grave. The head of the serpent was Crushed. All glory be to Christ, who is the captain of our salvation. John Calvin says this about the uh, ascension. He says, The noblest triumph that God ever gained was when Christ, after subduing sin, conquering death, and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church. Verse 9, lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This repetition is expression of a fixed purpose and the authority to command the thing to be done. Lift up your head, O gates. Christ is the one who possesses this authority to make that call. He being truly God and truly man, commanded the gate to be opened so that he may enter in and sit down at the right hand of his father. And he rules and reigns over both heaven and earth from that seat while his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Christ, the Lord of hosts, is the king of glory who reigns over earth and all that it contains. He was victorious over sin, over death, over hell. He reigns with all authority in both heaven and on earth. So how do you ascend 
and stand in the holy place? It is through Christ alone. Do not look at this, uh, the, the clean hands and the pure heart and the, the speaking in truth, the mouth that is not defiled. Do not look at this as a checklist of things that you must do to be accepted by God. There is nothing that you can do to be accepted by God other than trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. Every other work that you try to perform will fail. It is through Christ alone. You cannot do it on your own. Your perceived works of righteousness in order to cleanse your hands and purify your heart, they will leave you lost for eternity. The call of the church is to continually seek after the Lord. Be cleansed from the sin that so easily besets you. Walk with the church of Christ in triumph calling the world to repentance and faith in him. Tell them of his glory. Speak of how majestic our God is, for he reigns. For those of you who may not know Christ, seek him while he may be found. Cry out to him for the salvation that only he can provide. There is salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ. And do not rest until you hear that call to lift up your head, O gates. Why? So that the king of glory may come in and wash away the filth of your hands with the fountain of his blood and Purify your heart through regeneration of the spirit, whereby your soul will be holy and your deceitful tongue will be done away with and you will forever sing the praise to our glorious King, Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ and live.